This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. Just five days away from the relegation six-pointer between Liverpool and Manchester United. We look back at Monday night football. Klopp's men held by Palace. Darwin Nunes held quite a lot by Joachim Anderson, but arguably headbutting him wasn't the best idea. Or could it be the all-new witch's curse? Lord knows we needed one. Meanwhile, Elon Musk isn't buying Manchester United. Wolves look to sign a Portuguese player and Deli Ali might be off to Turkey. Jonathan Wilson's written a book, presumably his first, as he's never mentioned doing one before. It's about Bobby and Jack Charlton, so we'll ask him about that. Rangers are still in with a chance of getting into the group stages of the Champions League. There's own goal and injury time fun in Swansea. Paul Watson wants to talk about Greenland. There's your questions. And that's today's Guardian Football. Weekly. David says, does Barry have a new microphone? His audio quality was exceptional on Monday's pod. Well done, Barry. Well, that's quite strange, actually, because I did have... I forgot to, to press record on one of my devices and then had tremendous difficulty um, making the other device... Small or the other recording on my second device, uh, small enough to to send to producer Ian via WhatsApp, and I'm already bored with this anecdote. <laughs> I, was about to, I was about to say, never, never has a pod started in such a boring way. <laughs> you can only get, can only get better yeah. from here. Oh, hold on, we we still have to talk about Wilson's book. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Um, Paul Watson, hello. Hello. Hi, yeah. Hi, Max. I, f- I feel yes. like this has lowered the bar for me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, literally anything you say now will be great. Hello, Jonathan Wilson. Morning. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for being on. Um, Sean says, how is Barry feeling about predicting the Liverpool blip? You did say they might struggle. Seems silly to talk about the title race so early, but... Four points is quite a lot of points to be behind, isn't it, at this stage, Baz? It is after two games, and Manchester City are looking particularly good. Uh, My concern was that fatigue might catch up with Liverpool. I don't think it's been an issue so far, but they haven't. It's quite early for that time. (laughs) They they were um, really poor against Fulham and not great against Crystal Palace, but... Uh, uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't be pressing the panic button just yet. Wilson, are you pressing the panic button? Well, not really the panic button, but you know, the fact is that to win the title, you can't drop many points. That um, What did City get last season? 93, so 21 points dropped. Yeah, but there's been seasons in the last five years where you could only drop 14 or 15 points. Uh, you, know, you need probably high 90s points. So 
if you've already dropped sort of a quarter of the points that you can drop in a season in the first two games, particularly when those games are against Fulham and Palace, you're not, not against top six sides, you, you've got to be concerned. I think the other concern for Liverpool is the way the fixtures pan out now that they've got away games against Arsenal and Chelsea before they play City on, I think it's October the 16th, that game, whereas City don't really have any tough fixtures until then. So they could be going to that game without doing anything much wrong, sort of six, seven, eight points behind. And if they were to lose that game, suddenly they're nine, ten points behind and, and you think then, well, the title race really is over and it's only the middle of October. Un- unless, you know, Chelsea or Tottenham or Arsenal are better and have greater depth than we think they do. But for Liverpool, the title race could be over. Uh, Leo says, how hairy will Darwin Nunes' chest be by the time he's next allowed to play? Yes, he became the first Liverpool player to be dismissed for violent conduct during Jurgen Klopp's tenure. He headbutted Joachim Anderson in the 57th minute, Paul. I think I liked about this was this idea that Darwin Nunes in his whole career would never have been sort of manhandled by a defender before <laughs> until he arrived in the Premier League. You talk about this Uruguayan who's played in Portugal. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, th- I think they might have experienced a little bit of this in the past. I did think it was interesting that he, it would, he would blow up in that way. Um, I guess maybe the pressure of a Liverpool debut and, you know, uh, home debut. And may- maybe it's, it's, it, it was something that was said to him that was beyond the pale. But yeah, I... I think it's it's been quite interesting watching now people talking about Joachim Anderson as if he's some kind of Machiavellian <laughs> genius figure, sort of these videos of this is how he did it. This is how he pulled his strings. And this really is something that you see like, you know, every week from pretty much every defender, uh, I, I reckon, unless he has some magic spell that he cast on him. It was, it was basically just annoying him. Social media being what it is. Crystal Palace are expected to report to the police between three and 400 death threats that Joachim Anderson and his family have received in the wake of this. I mean, I just don't, there's nothing you can do to stop these things. I wonder if they're even worth talking about. I don't know. Probably not worth talking about. And I'm sure, almost certainly sure that none of the death threats are valid death threats. And we don't know where they've come from. But, you know, just, there is a, breed of football fan on social media who they try to outdo themselves to show how how big a fan of their team they are uh i suspect many of them are kids who don't go to games and i suppose they have to validate their their existence and their support of premier league teams somehow and this is how it manifests itself i don't know is there much you can do about it i'm not sure uh, Wilson, I thought Liverpool probably, you know, they created loads of chances. They could have easily won this game. But the, the Crystal Palace goal, like the Eze was so good for that goal. It was beautiful, wasn't it? Oh, it's a brilliantly taken goal. I mean, to finish, the, the, the final pass were both sensational. I, I, I don't think Liverpool's defending on it was particularly good. Um, I thought Nat Phillips sort of got himself a bit in. It was, it, you'd almost see he was sort of thinking, should I step into the Palace half to make sure that if Zaha goes beyond me, he's offside? Um, and then he sort of hesitate with that, and allowed, that allowed Zaha to get a bit of pace. But I mean, yeah, the, the XG for that game was it was, it was something like two point two to one point six for Liverpool, which I, I felt the difference was much bigger than that. And that, that I think it possibly is where XG doesn't tell you the full story because Liverpool had I think ten shots before the first Palace shot. So if any one of those has gone in, it's a totally different game. Palace have to come out with space for Liverpool to to hit, but because Liverpool 
yeah, and, and especially on the other hand, men have to commit men to the attack. They're leaving space, and, and yeah, you know, Zaha had the chance where he hit the post late on, and Palace, I guess, created probably three or four quite good chances. Yeah, I think that's the odd thing about Liverpool's start of the season. I think against Fulham, the XG was something like two point two to one point one in a game where, yeah, you know, I sort of felt Fulham had the better of it, but the XG said the opposite. I guess Liverpool did hit the woodwork twice, and Fulham only once. So yeah, you know, the XG suggests they should have won both those games, but the, the, those those fine margins, um, not maybe having the, the set front three players feeling their way back, maybe losing Thiago, so you don't quite have that control in midfield, which which affects you going forwards and and also defensively. Maybe that's just yeah, you know, it's just enough uh, to to derail a title challenge almost before it's begun. And Mikel says, has Jurgen Klopp just settled the biggest question of all time in professional football? Is there such thing as the witch's curse? And does this mean full vindication for Barry? Um, uh, this is what Klopp said. We had a really tricky week. Every day someone pulls up and you think, what is going on here? Do we have a witch in the building? Um, <laughs> oh, no. Barry, do you feel vindicated? No, I don't. Um, I'm pretty certain there isn't a witch in the Liverpool training ground. Um, and then even if there is... The, the Jurgen Klopp's presumption is that it's an evil witch. It could be a white witch, a good witch. Um, but yeah, they they are in a bit of trouble with injuries and now this suspension for Nunes. Um, you know, Diogo Jota is a big loss. Uh, he's missed all of pre-season with a hamstring injury. So you'd presume it'll be some time before he's back or reaches full fitness. Um, Thiago is a miss. And but but you have to leg, you know you have to leg, legislate for that this is going to happen. Where was the original witch in in at Tottenham? Tottenham, yeah. Right. Okay. I can't remember. I I remember Barney and I had a massive ding dong about this. Ding dong, the witch is dead. <laughs> in fact, but I can't remember exactly what it was about. I think you were saying there was a, an inherent spursiness which prevented them from ever fulfilling their potential. Uh, oh no! It was something about them win lo- losing loads of semi-finals. I think was it? yes, that was it. Rather than the witch, the other, the other, the, the, you know, the perhaps the second most obvious conclusion to draw is Liverpool of yeah you know, seven seven plays out with muscular injuries. Which, if Raymond Verheyen was still as active on Twitter as he used to be, I'm sure you'd be pointing out is to do with overloading players, and and, and maybe that that is a result of the you know, ridiculous schedule of the last the last two years, and then trying to do a you know, pre-season in, in less time than you normally have. I went to St. George's Park once to do a medical um, uh, during the Soccer and Glory years just to see, you know, what is a medical like? And they tested my quads and my hamstrings. And according to the uh, <laughs> the figures, I didn't actually have any hamstrings. And not only that, when I stood on the kind of, you have to stand on these boards to jump up and land to see how high you can jump as a standing jump. I was... For some reason, they just said I I shouldn't actually be able to stand up, given that <laughs> when I'm when I'm still I'm I le- I should lean one way and just fall over and collapse. Um, anyway, Christopher says, will Liverpool be considered the new Banter FC? And there's quite a lot of caveats here. If Spurs fail to beat Wolves, Villa fail to beat Palace, Everton beat Forest, Brentford fail to beat Fulham, Leicester and Southampton draw, West Ham beat Brighton, and then United beat Liverpool by three, which would mean, Paul, Liverpool would end up bottom of the Premier League. Oh, it was amazing. I, I love, this This has been happening a little bit, and some people are actually doing this relatively seriously. I've seen people tweeting and saying, you do realise if Man United beat Liverpool, they go above Liverpool. Mm. And people are talking about this as if this is some 
incredible statistical truth. They've played two games and they go, this is what happens when you start drawing conclusions about a season from 180 minutes of football. Um, it's, it does baffle me how quickly people have flown off the handle. But, but surely you've drawn some conclusions about Manchester United, Paul. I mean, I have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, there is a caveat there. Um, there. I don't think Man United will win the league. No. Uh, I think I can make that. I could jump to that conclusion. But yeah, no, I, I get the, the fatalism around Man United, but it is fairly hilarious. And, and I do kind of think as well, Liverpool are probably just getting their blip out of the way. It's actually probably very canny from Klopp because you have to have a lull yeah. and maybe just get it done at the start. And then, because, you know, everyone talks as if Man City won't drop any points. They will. They'll have that patch where they inexplicably draw with someone like Palace and then they lose a little bit of confidence. So that, that, that will happen. So maybe if Liverpool get it done now and then go on a 100% record, maybe that's it's shrewd. Um, Wilson, quite a few people wanted to ask you questions about Manchester United. Uh, the latest news is that, uh, according to Marker, they're... Um they're in for Jao Felix and Casemiro. So, you know, who they have a midfield of Casemiro and Elon Musk with Jao Felix playing in the 10. Um, uh, Edward says, look, if Wilson was given the keys to Manchester United, what would he do? I know he'd get rid of Ronaldo, but what else? Keep Maguire, favour youth over experience? I mean, I, I just wouldn't take the job. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I would because I get a book deal out of it, probably. Um, my, my, my three minutes as Manchester United manager before... For getting sacked. Oh, you take the job, right? You take the job. Come but on. What, what job has he been given? Like, director of football. Yeah, really. they, they they keep appointing directors of football and then giving him no responsibility. That, that's that's half the problem. Um, I don't I don't I don't know where you start. That's a problem. That there's no you know there's that uh, Rangnick interview last year, where you know the interview where he says yeah we, we it's now obvious we need open heart surgery and you have to change. He starts off going we have to change four five six players, and there's a slight pause. He goes, Eight, nine, ten players. <laughs> you probably do. I mean, I, I guess yeah. There's a handful. You sort of say there's something there, and they fit whatever philosophy you're, you're bringing into the club, and you, you try and make them work. You probably try and make Jaden Sancho, Sancho work because he's a player who we've seen work in a modern system. Like Ronaldo's the first to go. Obviously, I think you've got to replace De Gea because I, I don't think you can play any kind of progressive passing out from the back football with a goalkeeper who can't can't pass the ball. Any team who presses you is going to cause problems. And then you see stuff like, oh, well, they should sign Morata. Morata's available. You can get Morata. We know he's played together with, with Ronaldo before. And, and then you can, you can play a bit more direct. So you, but you're just putting another patch over you know, on, on this you know, collapsing dam. It's, 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 it might hold it together for you know, a handful of weeks. But that's, that's not a long-term plan. All these central midfielders have been linked with how can you go from De Jong to Rabiot to Casemiro? Yeah, those are three incredibly different players. Yeah, do, do they have any kind of scouting or recruitment department? Or is it just that, you know, that's in a room somewhere and they've, they've, you know, the phone line's gone down and nobody's noticed, so whatever they say is just ignored. Like, you, so this is why you know, the problem is at every level. They're not finding the players, and then when they do sign them, they're making them worse. I mean, if you, I don't know if you saw Monday Night Football, but they... Um, they divided all United, you know, 24 signings or something into red, amber and green. Uh, and they had two green. Uh, they had Ronaldo under amber, which I think I think is generous. But anyway, so they're saying of the, of the I think it was 24, it might have been 22, but of the 20-odd signings, two have been good. But of those players, the significant thing for me was each of the ones they've got rid of, they've sold at a loss. So 
you know, something fundamentally is going wrong with the recruitment. Now, obviously, some players you will bring in, you'll you know they'll play for you for five, six years, they'll do great things, they'll get old, and then you sell them at a lower price, or you let them go at the end of their contracts. That happens. But for every single one of twenty odd players, that's catastrophic. Who who were the two, by the way? Sorry, who were the two green lights? Uh, they were Bruno Fernandes and Zlatan was it? yeah it was Zlatan I, 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 for me I just said Zlatan was amber rather than green and Bruno Fernandes has been in such terrible form recently that yeah his green is sort of you know it's, 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 it's like a like a like a lawn in the drought it's going steadily more brown Wolves have uh, agreed a club record 38 million with Sporting Lisbon for Portugal midfielder Mateus Nunes 45 million euros plus 5 million add-ons um, I don't know much about him does anybody know how good this player is I'm not surprised Wolves have signed a Portuguese player. As Philippe says, by my reckoning, this will make uh, this the 26th Portuguese player signed by Wolves um, since 2016, which is, I don't know if that's good or bad. It seems quite specific, doesn't it? Well, it's the George Mendes connection, isn't it? But if it works for you, why not? <laughs> uh, Wesley Fofana says he wants to leave... Leicester and joined Chelsea. Uh, Chelsea also in Anthony Gordon. They've had a forty-five million pound offer uh, rejected by Everton. Um, they've signed uh, Cesare Casade. I think that's how you pronounce it from Inter. Um, Nikki will correct me next time she's on. Deli Ali to Bajiktas, Paul. This is Ooh, quite yeah. a. The Deli Ali story is fascinating. I the other day watched the Ajax semi-final the Lucas Moura one, but Ali was brilliant in that game. And it yeah. was 20, what, 2018? So it was quite a long time ago, but still. Yeah, I'm, I I do not know what happened with Dele Ali, and I, I don't think anyone really knows what happened. It's rare to see a player with so much potential go on this trajectory. And, and I can't stress enough, the trajectory he's on, I think he's due for Moldova in about three or four years. Uh, maybe a layover in sort of, second division Canadian football um, at some point soon after that. Because, I mean, he's he is, and I, I don't say this lightly, he's on a Rohan Ricketts uh, trajectory here. Um, and I, I hate to say that of the, of the man, but, um, I, yeah, it's quite it's quite weird. There must be something going on that we don't understand because he's such a talented player. And I don't think he has any obvious attitude problems. I don't know if those have come out anywhere, but he doesn't seem like a troublemaker. It's quite amazing how quickly he slipped down. Um, I feel quite sad about it, actually, despite my joking. I feel quite sad about it. Yeah, he was... Didn't Jose not let him go to PSG, Wilson? Like, and you sort of think that could... I mean, PSG is obviously a basket case, but, you know, the that is a shame for him, isn't it? Because that, that move might have changed things because Everton was never going to work for him. Yeah, it? I think Everton was a terrible move. It, I mean, I, I don't know. You sort of think when a player goes on a slide like that, maybe just... Yeah, even going somewhere like PSG, he's he's out of the glare of publicity, uh, and maybe that is a chance to rebuild things. That yeah, you you get some easy wins against weaker teams, and you start to rebuild your confidence. But it, yeah, it is fundamentally just sad that that a player that gifted can can just seemingly lose it. I, I presume it's confidence. Uh, just seems to have totally fallen out of love with football and lost whatever it was that, that that gave him that spark. And you know, only people who train with him know whether he's putting it in in training and, and know what his attitude is. But yeah, as, as Paul says, you, you watch him play. It doesn't look like he's sort of stropping around or kind of 
there's anything going on there. He just looks like a player who's forgotten how to play. I mean, the Paul, your Rohan Ricketts trajectory, you were you were pretty good. I mean, I, I don't know how it's not something no. that well, I think I, many I, people know. Max, uh, I speak as a man who once was offered to by by his agent was offered to sign Rohan Ricketts. So I was offered the chance to sign Rohan Ricketts. So <laughs> okay, which where, what club were you at? Uh, I, I at the time owned um, Mongolian Premier League club Bayangal FC, and our budget for the season was around. Four thousand pounds, the equivalent of, uh, and we had contact came came to us from Rohan Ricketts's or a representative of Rohan Ricketts, um, who informed us that Amazing. yeah, we if we paid three thousand pounds upright uh, upfront, we could we could sign him, but his um, monthly demands were more than our annual budget. So, uh, but he loved he loved the project, Max. He loved the project. Um, we didn't have a we didn't actually have a training ground, uh, so I'm not sure how much he knew about the program. No, no. <laughs> we, we barely had any footballs. Uh, but yeah, so that's why that's why I checked him out at that point and was quite. I suddenly realised I hadn't really thought about him for years, um, and it was quite a career. It's so long that I won't read it out, but I would I would urge anyone to go to his um, his Wikipedia. Well, give give us. Peak, mid and bottom. Okay, so peak is Spurs, right? He was at Arsenal, then he went to Spurs, played 30 times for them. Then a bit of sort of Coven- bit Midlandsy, Coventry Wolves, ends at Barnsley in the UK. Then he went to Toronto. Then he went to two places, I mean, I'm in Eastern Europe, Dios Gori and Dacia Chisinau. Oh, Kishina, yeah, that, that's Moldova. So yeah, he does, does go to Right, Moldova. okay, right. Then I think Holland. Gory is in Georgia. Isn't right. It? Okay, Georgia. Then in SV Wilhelmshaven, which I guess is Denmark, right? Shamrock Rovers. One game for Exeter. Who knows where Dempo is? Is that in India? Dempo Quevedo, PTT Ryong, Eastern Sports Club, Abani Limited, Dhaka, Leatherhead, and then Masters Football. So anyway, what what a, what a holiday that is. You could sell that as like a tour, couldn't you? The Rohan Ricketts tour. I, 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 I'm sorry. Uh, you, you've done me the pronunciation there. It's just Giri and it's in Hungary. Right. Okay. So I see. Right. Just to correct Wilson. That's okay. No worries. Um, anyway, the, that'll do um, for part one. Uh, before we end it, just to extend our sympathies uh, to the family and friends of Lenny John Rose, a former Berry, Burnley midfielder, um, played at Blackburn, Preston, Hartlepool, Swansea. Um, he uh, battled with um, motor neuron disease. I interviewed him a couple of times. He was always incredibly eloquent, dealt with it in an exceptionally brave and sort of matter-of-fact way. Uh, and uh, even as his speech slur was, you know, always willing to come on the radio and 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 talk about his condition and raise awareness for it. So very sad news that he's passed away at the age of 52. We'll be back in a sec. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Aiden says, can Wilson recommend a book about brothers named Jack and Bobby that isn't about the Kennedys? Um, uh, Phil says, have any decent books been written about the Charlton brothers and the complex relationship between the pair of them? Two brothers is... 
out now, written by Jonathan Wilson. Tell us about why you wanted to write this book. Well, okay. Uh, to be completely honest, uh, I had a couple of other projects that weren't getting off the ground. I was moaning about it during an author's republished cricket match to the square leg umpire. Uh, and he went to my agent two weeks later and said, would you fancy doing a book on the Charlton Brothers? And initially I thought, ah, I'm not sure there's much there that hasn't been said. Then the more I thought about it, the more I thought, actually there is loads that hasn't been said. That they are two figures who uh, are representative of much wider trends in the late 20th century, both in sport and in wider society. Uh, and and the, the fact that they, you know, they, they, they obviously came from the same place and went on such different trajectories is itself fascinating, the different routes uh, that, that, that could be taken. So yeah, they, they grew up in Ashington, uh, which was you know, both, both born late thirties, and at the time was sort of a thriving mining village, uh, incredible sporting tradition. So uh, Bobby won Football of the Year in '66, Jack in '67, but they weren't even the first players from their street to win Football of the Year because you had Jimmy Adamson, who was Burnley captain, who won it in '62. You then have Mark Wood and Steve Harmison, two of the best fast bowlers of the last twenty years. Uh, one of them a World Cup winner as well. Uh, for Washington, the, the Weatherspoons in Ashington is named after the, the West Indian batsman Rowan Canai because uh, he played there in the early sixties. Uh, so it's this, this place with this great sporting tradition, sort of real sort of obviously miners' lives were, were pretty miserable and it was a very dangerous, underpaid, difficult job. But this sort of thriving community, which as industry has left, is is really struggling. Bobby, because of his talent, left and ended up living in Cheshire. Jack kept on going back and and, and visited frequently towards the end. So. They're, they're the sort of two two ways that sort of exiles dealt with 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 leaving home with the decline of of their their their, their town. Look, it's an interesting thing about these two guys, isn't it? That that they are they are brothers. Siblings can often be different. They are so different, as you mentioned. Bobby Charlton is a naturally amazingly talented footballer. Jack is clearly good, but is nowhere near him, or that's how it's perceived. Jack is really a bully and outgoing. Bobby is reserved, and. And yet, they both win the World Cup together doing the same thing. Yeah. Um, and I, I think, yeah, if you look at the family, you can see that Jack very much takes after his mother. She was very, very outgoing, loved attention, loved publicity. So when, when her son's become famous, uh, yeah, she's always on telly. She's always giving interviews. She's always in the press. Their dad, Bob, yeah, he just, he's down the allotment with his pigeons. And it's very hard to find out what Bob thought about anything. He doesn't seem to have given a single interview. He didn't. He didn't watch the semi-final, did he, of the World Cup because he was down the pit. Yeah, it wouldn't change his shift. <laughs> <laughs> so the only way he saw it was because David Coleman found out and sent up not merely a tape but also a video recorder so he could watch it in the mine office. Uh, they did go to the final, but you then, I mean, one of the things I think, I mean, you, you've mentioned this before, and I think it's very true that for our generation. Uh, and I'm aware I'm slightly older than you, but but people in their sort of 40s, maybe maybe even slightly older, that World Cup team is sort of sort of frozen in gold. They kind of you sort of think they they were just sort of this perfect entity that was always there. But Jack only gets in the team in April 1965, and it's it's really controversial selection. He's 29. He's never really been considered any good at all. Um, and the reason he's picked is because he's he, you know he fills in what Bobby Moore can't do. Yeah, he's 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 good in the air. He's safety first. He'll mop up behind Bobby Moore, and Jack hadn't won a thing. He'd won promotion with Leeds. But he hadn't won a trophy till the World Cup. So what's that? That's like sort of Nathan Collins winning the. Is he English? You know, it's like who is it? Ben Mee winning the World um, Cup. 
Yeah, I guess. Yeah, but but uh, Ben Mee, if he had a significantly more talented younger brother. Right. Okay. Yes. Well, I mean that's uh, a key part of the <laughs> story, I guess, yeah. isn't it? There's this astonishing interview Sissy gives in the early seventies where she says, um, "You know, Sissy, the mother," where she says, uh, "The proudest moment for me was the World Cup final." And you said, "Well, yeah, obviously, you, 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 two of your four lads have just won the World Cup for England." And she goes, "Because that's when when Jack reached Bobby's level." Hey, what an odd thing to say that is. But it, you know, it's, it's not seeing your two lads winning the World Cup. It's a, the elder one who you've clearly come to favour by that point. Did, despite I think it being the other way when they were much younger, his his you know is is now on a level playing field with the more talented second one. And at simultaneously, it's an insight into how surprising it was for people then that, that Jack could do that. And of course, he, he goes on to win loads of stuff with Leeds, but it's late in his career, uh, and also indicative of the, the tensions within the family relationship about by that point. I love the post World Cup final. You just imagine they'd all celebrate together, but you know. Jack buggers off with a journalist and yeah. gets in a taxi that's already got someone in it. Well, yeah, there's loads of stuff about that celebration there. So like, the uh, wives and girlfriends have their own celebration in a different hotel. <laughs> so the players are in, um, oh, what's it called? Did Graham Souness uh, organise it? Or... <laughs> <laughs> so they're in that hotel by in South Kensington. Um, is it Royal Lancaster? Is that right? Uh, it, it seems to have been quite formal and Jack eventually just gets bored. And his, his wife... Pat is nowhere about because she's uh, she's pregnant, so she's still you know she's back at home. Uh, so a few of the other players go out with with their respective partners after the sort of formal things finished. <laughs> Jack just just goes out with Jim Mossop from the Express, and they literally just jump in a taxi. There's already a violinist in the taxi, but they're like, we've just won the World Cup, so like, do you mind kind of <laughs> like drop you off first, and we'll go to somewhere serving booze. And they go into Soho, get absolutely lashed, and he wakes up the next morning at a house in Walthamstow. <laughs> Um, and he's having this hungover breakfast in the garden the next morning, and he hears his voice over the over the over the fence. And bizarrely, it's a woman who lived next door to his man in Nashington going, <laughs> "Oh, morning, Jack. How are you doing?" Um, uh, the Munich disaster had like such an impact on Bobby. And interestingly, I've never really read about the tragedy in detail. And I guess when you when you do read about it, it is understandable how much that defined him. Isn't it? Yeah, and in two ways. It's the obvious way that yeah, he's lost a load of his teammates who, who were mates as well. I mean, I think yeah, you hear a lot in football that it's a pretty mercenary profession and, and friendships within football are, are pretty difficult. But yeah, I, I think at that time he spent a lot more a lot more time with players. He didn't have the same uh, rate of transfer. Uh, but also, yeah, that 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 team were they'd grown up together. They. And, and you know, Bobby describes it as paradise, that the, that 18 months between him making his debut in, in Munich, where they're playing this brilliant, attacking, individualistic football. Uh, you know, they win the league, they, they get to the semi-final of the European Cup. Yeah, their last two results before the crash of a 3-3 draw in Belgrade against Venezuela, which is enough to win the quarter-final. The previous game was a 5-4 win away to Arsenal. So they're playing this you know, incredibly attacking football and when he comes back after Munich, not only has he lost his mates, but pretty quickly football begins to change and becomes much more cynical, much more systems driven, which of course is what, what appeals to Jack. And that's, that's Jack's rise at Leeds. Um, and Bobby sort of sense was always trying to get back to, to the, the sort of prelapsarian days of, a, of 57 and early 50, very early 58. Obviously very different careers as managers. I'd just written here, insert Barry's questions about um, you know, Jack and, and the Republic. But like he, he kind of brought that 
I remember I was on air when when Jack Charlton passed away, and and we got you on the phone, Barry, and, and I think you said, look, he he basically he brought that country together almost, which which sounds like hyperbole, but it, it it's almost true. No, it is true um, because when he took the job, Ireland was in an awful mess. Um, unemployment was massive. Emigration was a huge problem, uh, and the Troubles in Northern Ireland were ongoing and it wasn't really much fun place to live. And he, you know, rallied this team. The, the football they played wasn't particularly entertaining. It was, you know, he he had them gegging pressing long before uh, that particular tactic was invented by some German, spectacle-wearing German. But uh, he, he brought the country together and united people in a way that, was probably unprecedented and what he you know he he was a the regard in which he was held and continues to be held um after his death in ireland is cannot be overestimated i so i'd gone into it into that side of things quite cynically that so i you know i knew ireland had got undergone enormous you know social and um economic change in the late 80s early 90s and i you know, i'd seen people sort of so saying, oh, Jack was absolutely essential to that. He was essential to the peace process. And I, 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 I think essential is probably too strong a word, but I, I think I'd underestimated how significant a figure he was in that. Um, that it probably would have happened anyway, but it really helped, in, particularly in the peace process, to have an incredibly popular English bloke uh, who sort of defied stereotypes of Englishness. Yeah, he wasn't the sort of duplicitous civil servant. He was this, yeah, bluff, plain speaking bloke who liked to fish and liked to drink and, and was essentially just you know, very normal. Uh, it really helped having him in, in an incredibly public position, offering this alternate perspective of, you know what, they're, they're not that different. Did they, they got on as brothers when they were young, right? But they didn't when they got older. Is that oversimplification? I mean, yeah, basically that's it. It's a slight oversimplification. I mean, they, they, they clearly had a lot of uh, rows when they were young, as, as brothers, I guess, do. Uh, but they were pretty close. I mean, to the extent that Bobby was uh, the best man at Jack's wedding, which was January '58, so just before Munich, a month before Munich. So loads of the guests at that wedding. I think well, I think three of the guests were were killed in Munich. I, I think Bobby. Uh, I think Munich. It um, it exacerbates those, those traits of, of reticence and reserve and shyness and introversion in his character, uh, understandably enough. And I think. What what really sort of drives the the wedge into the family is Bobby's marriage to to Norma. Uh, Norma worked at a modelling agency, which was I think sixty two. They married, and she was, you know, of, of that sort of first wave of of women who who had careers and felt that the woman's job wasn't just in the home, and and that was very different to to the view that that Jack had been brought up with that, that his mother believed in. There's a there's a documentary in nineteen seventy one where Jack goes back to Ashington. And he it was one scene where it's a brilliant documentary on YouTube. It's, worth, it's called Big Jacks of the World. It's really worth uh, looking up. And actually, one of the extraordinary things about it is how modern it feels that he's presenting as if he's doing a, you know, talking into his phone on YouTube. It's a very, very sort of relaxed um, form of presentation of a thought. So I think you didn't really get them. But one of the scenes is he's having Sunday lunch at home, and it's him, his dad, and one of the younger brothers, and his mum's just in the kitchen serving it. And there's no sort of thought that the women should sit down at the table. And he, he give, you know, Jack gives some opinions then on the role of women that are pretty traditional, shall we say. I, I think he, he changed his mind as he, as he got older. 
and there's a, and a, you know, another famous documentary where I think, I think it's 1981 where he goes to the Blitz Club and is sort of fascinated by this whole other other world. He's clearly, you know, was was not sort of he wasn't digging his heels in. He he was sort of yeah interested in change and, and and prepared to change his views. So I think he did liberalise as he got older, but but certainly in the 60s, he you know he thought that you know the wife should look after the husband and should make the meals and and, and whatever. Uh, and I think uh, Norma and Sissy were both very strong women, and they had very different opinions and and um, came from very different backgrounds. I, I think that caused friction. And Bobby's sort of caught between them. And it's not really anybody's fault. And um, Bobby ends up, as, a, as I guess you do, siding with his wife over his mother. And, and Jack, I think particularly as his parents got older and needed more and more help, felt pretty uh, resentful about that. But I don't think they ever sort of, I don't think it was ever sort of some enormous irreconcilable row. I think it was just they gradually grew apart. So there's a, um, Jack was on Desert Island Discs in, I think, 96. And he sort of says, Something along the lines of, you know, maybe me and Bobby would have been closer if he'd been a manager, we'd have had more to talk about. And then 2008, Bobby gets a Lifetime Achievement Award at Sports Best Out of the Year and Jack presents it to him. It's really moving, actually, isn't it? Yeah. And they're both in tears on the stage. And there's clearly, whatever estrangement has been there, there's still clearly a lot of love and a lot of respect. A um, couple of questions for you about the art of writing a book, Wilson. Um, I'm sure you'll hate to talk about that. Uh, Zvonimir says... <laughs> Uh, question from an aspiring writer: Does Wilson have a daily word count he tries to hit? Uh, weekly, uh, but I, 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 I'm always very uneasy about this type of question. I, I think do whatever works for you, and I've got mates who are very, very successful writers who will do all the research and then they'll write the book in a month. Um, I, I couldn't do that; I'd panic. And also, I'd like I like to write down ideas as they're going, and yeah, obviously you keep revising it. But I would. Once I get into the writing stage, I try and do 5,000 words a week. Um, and I try and finish it about three months before the deadline, so there's plenty of time to to revise. And you, you always find things you've missed and things you have to go back into. But that, that's how I do it. I'm absolutely not saying that's the only way to do it or the right way to do it. And Ed Miliband's Bacon Sandwich says, genuine question, how does Wilson find the motivation all of the time? <laughs> I absolutely fucking love money. Oh. <laughs> Yeah. Well, that's inspirational. It is inspirational. Yeah, no, it's no. also, if anyone spent yeah, you know, time with him, it is also true, yeah, Barry. It's it? very true. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, good for you. Good for you. And I hope you make lots with this book. But partly, I'm just not very good at relaxing. So I need to have something to do. And I might as well do projects I enjoy as opposed to kind of um, not doing projects I enjoy. <laughs> Good idea. Uh, two brothers, buy it. It's out now. Uh, and that'll do for part two. Part three, uh, we'll round up uh, the rest of last night's football and any other business. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, Rangers 2, PSV 2. This was a good game, Baz, in the sort of final qualifier for the Champions League group stages. Yeah, a rainy night at Ibrox. Two teams going at it very full-blooded. Uh, finished a two-all draw, um, and yeah, Rangers are still very much giving themselves a chance of making the group stages, although it will be difficult. Ruud van Nistelrooy is the PSV manager. I don't know if everyone else knew that, but and it's it's one of these really obvious things that passed me by, like Sergio Ramos to PSG. But uh, I was surprised to see him in the dugout, and it was a uh, an excellent game. Rangers conceded twice from corners, which I presume they'll be displeased with. 
uh, once when the opener when they failed clear, but uh, scored two go- good goals as well. A, a lovely one-touch move for their first one, and then Tom Lawrence scored with a free kick from thirty yards. <laughs> the, <laughs> That's how he did it. Yeah, <laughs> it, it was straight a dipping shot, bounced straight in front of the keeper who caught it, and then somehow fumbled it over the line. And uh, Ali McCoy said on comms, I'll tell you what, he's had an absolute nuclear, which is not an expression I've ever heard before. (laughs) I think I know what he means. (laughs) uh, Didn't I see someone else on comms say, uh, that's what Ibrox will do to you? And I love that idea. It was just the Ibrox effect made it (laughs) squirm through his arms. It was was a howler, a good old-fashioned howler. It was... It was absolutely tremendous. It was lovely to see. Um, oh, the game is wide open, isn't it? As we go into the second leg, PSV equalising uh, pretty late on. The, the difference, I mean, obviously, it's obvious, but the noise at Ibrox is quite amazing. I heard Pat Nevin saying on the radio that he couldn't hear the producers back. But the difference between the noise when Rangers scored and the absolute silence when PSV scored. Uh, into the Football League, um, your manager, Paul, um, Nigel Pearson, uh, told Sky Sports he's thinking of packing up being involved in the sport due to the standard of refereeing, which is an all-time low. Presumably, you just agree with everything your manager says. Well, the funniest thing is he's saying that after a win, like a much-needed win as well, uh, beat Luton 2-0. And he's also saying it in response to our our player. So Mark Sykes put in a, a terrible tackle. It's, it's a clear red card tackle. And I don't actually think Pearson objects to that. What he thinks is that the victim, Luke Freeman, gets up and sort of shoves him. And he thinks that Freeman should also have got sent off, uh, whereas I think he actually got a yellow. Uh, But I think what you're actually hearing is probably the hangover from the fact that we've had some bad decisions uh, this season. Against Hull, uh, their penalty wasn't a penalty. I think it's even been officially confirmed it was was wrongly given. And we were denied two penalties that I think at least one of them should have been given. So I I think what you're seeing is is the same the same Nigel Pearson that called everyone ostriches. I think it's um, right. it's yeah. frustration at the fact that I think the club is, is we've been pretty stagnant. We had a pretty bad season last season and we started this season before that win last night. We'd, we'd had a shocking start. So I think you're just seeing Nigel Pearson at his good old frustrated best. The, the club in question being Bristol City, by the way, which in case anyone... Like, who's listening doesn't know. You think someone someone wouldn't know that, Barry? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it amuses me when people refer to City, uh, as in Man City, because this has crept up over my lifetime. And obviously City to me, a Bristol City, but it wasn't as ridiculous when Man City were not sort of the dominant force in world football. <laughs> so when people say City, I still think of us. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting when people get very annoyed when you say United and you're referring to Manchester United. As a Cambridge fan, I can cope with it. I, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, I know that I, I get there's a pecking order, but some, you know, I suppose Leeds fans get very upset about it, you know. But sort of in the context of a conversation, it's sort of pretty obvious sometimes. Um, Tom says, how many own goals conceded after 90 minutes is too many. Swansea 2, Millwall 2. This is absolutely spectacular. Millwall, Swansea were 2-0 up in the 90th <laughs> minute and then Swansea scored two own goals and it finished 2-2. Millwall had one shot on target in the game and managed to score two goals. Ellis James said he'd unfollow me because I thought it was 
tremendous. <laughs> it's absolutely wonderful to see. Um, and worth worth digging out the uh, Swans TV coverage of this game because they were slightly disappointed. <laughs> Although sort of reasonably, sort of reasonably reasonable about it, to be fair. Um, Alex says, is anyone going to mention the possibility of Simon Jordan taking over Coventry City? Do we expect Bassini to throw his hat into the ring? I don't know if uh, Simon Jordan was on TalkSport saying he's aware they're for sale and, and might be interested. I can't really remember how his tenure at Crystal Palace ended. I don't think it ended well and they weren't in a good place when he left. I think they were absolutely skinned. Um, I have no issues with Simon Jordan. I, he he offers very strident opinions on on a daily basis on his show with Jim White, many of which I disagree with emphatically, but he's perfectly entitled to them. Um, so, yeah, I, d- I don't know if he's already failed as a football club owner. Would it be a good move or not? I heard uh, his TalkSport colleague, Gabby Agbon Lahore, this morning saying who lives locally, saying he, he thinks Coventry fans would hate to have Simon Jordan in charge. So that'll be an interesting handover at 10 o'clock. Um, <laughs> we're, we're, we're in the TalkSport studio. <laughs> um, <laughs> the the, uh, the handover in the TalkSport studio, I, I eventually, when I was doing the afternoon show a lot, Simon Jordan wouldn't take his tangerine peel away with him from the desk. And I made a real point of saying, this is, you know, this is not my tangerine peel. It's not the producer's tangerine. This is your tangerine peel and you must take. And eventually, like there is a, there, he thinks, he thinks I'm a woke idiot, right? And, and he's not alone in thinking that. Let's be fair. <laughs> he's not alone, no. But, 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 but I've done some shows with him where he does have a, you know, you press the right buttons, has a certain vulnerability about him. Um, and uh, he's a, a very engaging broadcaster once he clears up his tangerine peel. Whether that helps you as a Coventry fan, I don't know. Um, well, I think the, the more the more pressing concern for Coventry City fans is the fact that they can't play at home uh, because their pitch has been absolutely destroyed. But I think... By the Rugby Sevens, yeah. Because Sevens Rugby was played on it during the Commonwealth Games. You know, people are saying now maybe that they should be start having to forfeit points. But when they do get back in there, there won't be Tangerine Peel in sight. I'll tell you that. If Simon Jordan takes over. Well, no, there'll be lots of it. And that's the problem. Uh, elsewhere, West Ham are appointed to uh, reportedly threatening to sue the London Stadium. This is from uh, John T. Coleman, who works for Football London. If they do not lower beer prices before next week's home meeting with Viborg. Cheapest pint on Sunday was how much? Anyone want to guess? £7.80. It was £7.30. That was the cheapest pint you could get. And I bet it, it's never a good pint, is it? It's not, you don't get a good pint at a football stadium, I think. Well, I, I don't really see the point of drinking at football matches because you have to kind of horse your pint back at half time because you can't bring it to your seat. Mm. So I, I'd be quite happy just to not drink at the game. Have a few before and a few after. And also, you just need a wee, right? If you have a, and someone always goes, you know, before the game, should I have one more quickly? I'm like, no, I'll just, I'll be all gassy for the game. It needs to be like the theatre where you can, you can order your beer. And then when you go back to, when you, you go back, 30,000 people go, go to the, uh, uh, the bar. It's just there waiting with your receipt. But I think one of the ideas, at the London Stadium and on certain other grounds, is that you you hang around after the game uh, and drink yes. for an hour or so, yes. so to, which you know, supposedly eases pressure on local transport and yeah you, you can sort of just have a relaxed couple of pints and 
then maybe in a slightly inebriated state, spend a load of money on Club Tat. Okay, well, we'll find out if they sue them or not. not sue your own stadium seems counterproductive. Um, Paul, you want to talk about the Greenland National Championship, which we haven't covered recently, I'll be honest. Yeah, I was amazed. I was amazed. It didn't feature at all on the pod on Monday. I don't know if it no. accidentally. Um, yeah, so basically Greenland, um, not an easy place to play football. So they have um, one week where they have their national championships because it's warm enough outside. They have a little window where they play their regional championships. Um, and so, yeah, in August, it's it's relatively tropical. So it's sort of four or five degrees C and sleeting. And they have this championships. Um, and the rest of the year, they have to play indoors. They have to play futsal. Um, so they just had their, this national championships um, at the start of August in a place called Ilulisat, which is called... Uh, means place of the icebergs it's this incredibly right. beautiful pitch with you can actually hear oh, can icebergs imagine. you can hear the icebergs sadly you can actually hear them melting in the background it's an incredible soundtrack actually if you go there um and all these teams from all over greenland descend um but that's not very easy to do because there's no roads in greenland between major settlements so they all have to either fly on these incredibly expensive flights uh or they have to take other methods such as boat which is actually potentially lethal because it's uh, in 2004 actually a team uh, did lose several players who tragically died trying to get a boat to the championships so it's this this tournament takes place sort of against all the odds every year uh hasn't actually happened for a couple of years because of covid um and it, it all went down to this big game between the home team in Ilulisat called N48. They have these abbreviated name and then you tend to have a letter and then the Euro Foundation like Scandinavian clubs do. Um, so you've got N48 playing against B67 from the capital nuke. It's um, a game of battleships. Yeah, exactly. As, as I was saying. And, and one of the other crazy things uh, that happened on the championships is because B67 were a, a kind of the big the big shots, really. They come from the capital, which is relatively metropolitan. Um and there was controversy because they actually only had 10 players for their first game because Air Greenland had stranded a load of their players because these were like primetime flights. They had overbooked the flights and the club had presumed they would prioritise the footballers, but they just didn't. So they ended up <laughs> playing the first game. They won their first game 7-0 uh, with 10 men. They actually had a squad of 10. These players did eventually get in and, and it all came to this final, which went to penalties. And the home team, uh, N48 from Illyrie sat one. Uh, and there was kind of scenes you know dancing in the streets of Ilulisa. but yeah the, the the backdrop to all of this is Greenland stands in this weird position where it's it's outside of FIFA because it can't get into UEFA uh for for basically political reasons UEFA has closed the door now on anything but sovereign states which Greenland is not it's it's part of the kingdom of Denmark has exactly the same status as the Faroe Islands but the Faroe Islands got in before this rule came into force Gibraltar then uh, got in through going through the court of arbitration for sport because Gibraltar also wouldn't qualify. But Greenland hadn't applied before the rule, which Gibraltar had. So Greenland is left with no room. And why would, why would UEFA bring in this rule? What's the point? I think rule? originally it was Spain trying to prevent originally Gibraltar, but also Spain is, I think, very scared of uh, Catalonia and Basque federations. Right, okay. But just generally, I think there's this fear that if you open the doors, floodgates, because, you know, they have this very clear way of preventing more members. And UEFA, don't, you, it's pretty Patel. It's pretty well, Patel. In yeah, football federations. I mean, football confederations work this way, and I think generally speaking, there's no appetite for new members because new members generally bring expense, and they don't bring a huge amount of you know. It splits the pot between fewer members. So yeah, Greenland is frozen out of UEFA and is now actually exploring uh, Concacaf as its as its biggest option. Is 
going through the North America route. Uh, and there's, there's a fairly good chance, I think, looking at the political uh, situation, they seem to have some good backers. And I think there's a fair chance they'll get into uh, CONCACAF, I think I should say, um, and could be playing against the likes of Canada, uh, Montserrat. You know, it could be some crazy fixtures coming up. But yeah, so so against this whole backdrop, they have these national championships. They're picky a team and they intend to play a game, I think, against a Kosovo team. I'm not sure if it's the full side or... But this is supposed to happen in September. Uh, and they're doing that in part to sort of make the case and say, look, why are we not in FIFA when there actually isn't any good reason? So just before we move on from Greenland, uh, it's a quiz question. Uh, anybody? I mean, I suspect you will know this, Paul. So don't answer until they both failed. <laughs> Greenland born player to play in the Premier League? No idea. Um, Marion Pahars. <laughs> I mean, he's told you it's part of the Kingdom of Denmark. Oh, that is true. Okay. Um, Very quick player. I think he was quick, wasn't he? Yeah. Isn't that what he's known for? Dennis Romadol. Ah, oh, it was a good, Dennis it was a good Romadol, guess. Yeah, no. I mean, that, that sort of genre of player. So there's a yeah, scamperer. Well, that, that era as well. Yeah, roughly. Uh, he's the kind of guy that would be at a dinner party. Yes, but Gronkia. Romadol's house. Yeah, yes, but Gronkia is correct. <laughs> I think in three isn't bad. I'm, I'm, I'm pleased with that. Um, uh, yeah, who are you affiliated to? Are you still doing Tim Poo City? Paul, yeah, yeah, okay. no, I'm, I'm helping out with Timpu City, um, which are just in season. case. Just where are they? Just for those who aren't uh, Bhutan. So it's Bhutan Premier League season started uh, at the weekend, which I think again, you know, everyone was on ten hooks. Um, and we started with a game against a new team called Royal Timpu College, and it was grim. I, I directed everyone to go and watch this game online. I imagine about eight people did. Uh, and it was awful. It was just dreadful because you have this situation in Bhutan where there's four. There's four big four, basically. Transport United, Paro, who are the champions, Druk Loyal, who are quite a new team, and us, Tim, Timpu City. And uh, those teams realistically can win the title. We, we, we play a level of football. And then all the other teams, not for any fault of their own, but are much less able to, to compete. So what they tend to do is to sit everyone behind the ball. And I mean, everyone behind the ball. And it, it is pretty grim watching. So we, uh, we <laughs> laboured to an 87th minute winner. Uh, but uh, we took the three points and uh, the big battle will be basically Timpu City against Paro, which is in two weeks' time. Paro are the champions. There are our nemesis. Are, um, you, um, are, you, are you on like a... I, who had... Mikel Arteta's assistant had AirPods in. Are you like on the phone to somebody saying he needs to push up a bit or, or not? No I, no, I don't think that would go well. Given how bad the streams are sometimes, I think that would go badly. I'd be saying, <laughs> get him up the corner. What corner? Oh, the, the corner. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm, it's more sort of strategic. So I help with the recruitment, help with uh, ideas about collaborations with bringing Bhutanese players to the UK, bringing UK coaches to Bhutan. So it's more about partnerships and developing right, okay. players, really. So, oh, cool. uh, And yeah, as I say, Paro, the big money boys, they're the, the Man City. They've, they've bought five foreigners in. They'll probably win the title, but um, but I'd like to think we can we can uh, surprise them. Um, any other niche football things that we haven't touched on recently, Paul, that people should be made aware of? No, no. I mean, it's mostly that. I was I was outraged about your lack of courage for the Greenland Championships, and um, I think you lost a lot of listeners. I think in we Nuke. did. Um, yeah, yeah <laughs> to be honest, right. We should find out. <laughs> If you are in Greenland, please send us an email, footballweekly at theguardian.com. John says, is it true that Jeremy Paxman only stepped down after Barry's clear expression of interest in his job on the pod? Who's who's next on Barry's hit list? Yeah, are you, go, are you going to be the next host of University Challenge, Barry? As I didn't know Jeremy Paxman had stood down. Well, sounds how convenient. 
<laughs> yeah, he's, he's moved to PSG. I think I think <laughs> I think you'd be too. I just don't think you could. You wouldn't be bothered enough to hurry anyone up. The show would be about three hours long. You would be like, oh. um, Four Boat says, usually on the Australian podcast, we get ads for all sorts of dire shit. Thank you to our sponsors. But I just heard one for scones. Scones. He says, so well done and thank you. Thanks for these, whoever is advertising scones in Australia. Thanks so much for, for giving your money. And Barza Jim says, um, has there ever been a more Guardian moment on the pod than when you, Max, advised that you banned a flatmate from having truffle oil in the house? <laughs> it's highly possible, isn't it, anyway? Um, it just makes me gag. I can't help it. No, I'm the same. I, I Basically, I, I went out, I had a really nice dinner for my mm-hmm. 40th birthday and, and OD'd on truffle. And I now have the slightest sense of it, and I, I, I feel sick. Yeah, if you OD on Trump, it's that Obelix, isn't it? It's a very middle-class Obelix version that you can no longer have any truffle. But, you know. Yeah, so it was... And what a shame, because uh, you've got so much money, Wilson. You could buy loads of truffle, <laughs> couldn't you? But... It, was, it was cheese with a truffle in it, yeah. served with meringue. Right. With it, was meringue. A, it was a dessert. I was, having, I was having to order extra meringue to kind of counteract the, the truffle, yeah. What ridiculous dinner that is. Um, anyway, I don't think I've ever even had a truffle. Um, mostly because I I don't have anywhere near as much money as Wilson. <laughs> You've never had a cheese meringue surprise for pudding either, have you? No. no. Anyway, we live no, different lives. Yet we all come together to talk about the same thing. Uh, that'll do for today's podcast. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. Cheers. Thanks, Barry. Thanks. Uh, We'll be back tomorrow. Football Weekly was produced by Joel Grove with Ian Chambers. Our executive producer is Daniel Stevens. This is The Guardian.